Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today we're excited to host Charlie Dellingpole, the CEO and founder of Comply Advantage. Comply Advantage is a fintech startup disrupting the compliance space using AI and machine learning to detect money laundering. In five years, Charlie has grown the company from five people in a garage to 250 employees with 500 customers in over 50 countries. Charlie is also a successful serial entrepreneur, but this being his third venture. Welcome, Charlie, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Peter. So could you start just by telling us about your background? Great, yeah. So um, I guess Comply Advantage is my third company. Prior to Comply Advantage, I started another fintech company back when fintech wasn't fintech. So um, I started a peer-to-peer lending marketplace for SMEs. So we were lending money from high net worths and hedge funds to small companies that had long dated accounts receivables to large corporations. Um, so we learned how many billion there called um, in a company called Market Invoice, Market Finance. And prior to that, um, I did TMT M&A at JP Morgan. So um, I was working with um, companies in the space, like software companies and tech platforms. And I started my first company when I was 16 doing like a, a student social media website. Um, so yeah. And then this company I started back in 2014. That's, that's great background. And interesting that you're a serial entrepreneur. Let's come back to that because I know a lot of folks listening to the podcast are interested in entrepreneurship. But going back to, to Comply Advantage, you mentioned that, that you mentioned that you started it in 2014. Could you tell us a bit more about the opportunity that you saw and, and um, uh, how, how you came about, how the Comply Advantage came about? Um, so I guess um, the, 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 the FinTech company I started previously, I, I, I built the whole tech stack from scratch, I guess, exposed me to all the kind of operational mechanics of the problems of launching like a fintech company in terms of the, the, the flow of funds, the, the payments, KYC, AML, onboarding, monitoring. And I felt when doing that, that the solutions were particularly poor and they needed to be improved upon. So, and, and then also from that vantage point, I saw wave after wave of investment in fintech. So I don't know how many billion has gone into fintech every year for the past 10 years, but um, there's been this kind of Cambrian explosion of companies um, in every vertical, every type of company, every innovation. And they all have this underpinning need, which is to ensure that they're not laundering money, they're not funding terrorism, they're not helping bad people um, succeed, right? So any, any criminal industry or enterprise needs financing. If you want to run a brothel, you need to pay rent. If you want to do human trafficking, you need to pay for airplanes. If you want to rob a bank, you need to launder the proceeds of the bank robbery, right? So, and I guess in some respects, fintech and the internet more broadly has opened up a whole new front for laundering the proceeds of crime. So I think that there was a kind of a kind of new industry that needed this. The, the, the previous solutions weren't particularly good. And also, I think there's an important moral case for not laundering money or helping drug dealers or cartels. I think everyone's seen lots of Netflix documentaries like, like Ozark or, or um, films about the cartels, and um, they know that the key problem they have is moving money. So if we can stop that happening, then we're doing something right. Yeah, it's definitely a force for good. 
So this is interesting. So you saw the need for a better solution in the KYC AML space. Could you tell us a bit more about what existing solutions look like or even today might look like and how Comply Advantage is different and better than the existing solutions in the marketplace? Yeah, so um, at the core is a database of bad people. So you have terrorists, money launderers, criminals, and companies like Dow Jones or Reuters or LexNexus have teams of 500 people or so who manually collect those data sets. And I thought that was a bit crazy because if you want to keep track of all 9 billion people and companies in the world, then it's better to do it by algorithms. So we now have a team of 250 people doing that by algorithms and machine learning. So I think that will hopefully help solve the problem of financial crime. And so rather than having a static database that someone in the Philippines manually updates, the, the kind of vision is to have a real-time graph-based index of every potential threat and to be able to automatically have analytics such that you can detect anomalies or connections that you wouldn't see otherwise. So um, if you're onboarding a person and that person is linked to a company that's a front company for North Korea or if they're linked in the press as being part of a drug gang or whatever the risk you might not be able to see is, we want to be able to expose that. So, and you, you're never going to do that with a kind of dumb database. You need to have a kind of real-time intelligent like graph of people and companies and connections and properties and to, to be able to do that. So that, that was the kind of vision. Yeah, that's great. And I know you've been recognized for your, um, as, as one of the, the world's top hundred most promising AI startups. So it seems like you're getting recognition for the algorithms and, and ML that you're able to use. Just, just diving a bit deeper into, into how this all, this world works and don't want you to reveal any trade secrets, but what, how do you scrape together all this data from all these disparate data sources? Like you said, there are 9 billion people on the planet. There are a lot of bad actors in the world. How do you go about aggregating all this information? How does that happen? I can imagine as I try to, as I just start to think through the, the, the uh, enormity of the problem, how difficult yeah. it was. So I'm just, I'm curious, how do you do that? So there are kind of four, like four or five key buckets of data. So firstly, you got sanctions, right? So Donald Trump subjects entities to an asset freeze or travel ban. That could be Venezuela, it could be Russian Magnitsky Act um, entities who are doing something that he doesn't like. And every, every country in the world will have regimes like that on a state level basis. Below that, you'll have other jurisdictions like municipal entities or states that also have lists of entities that they think are high risk. So that's kind of watch list, right? And that can be any kind of crime from terrorism to sexual crimes to adverse behavior information. And then there's um, political exposure. So if you're the president of a country, you could be exfiltrating funds. And so therefore you have to map out every country in the world's political affiliations. And so if you think maybe half a percent of the entire world is somehow kind of those people are involved in politics, then you have to map out how many million people um, who are politically exposed. And then you have to map out all of their relatives or associates. So there's a good chunk of the population that you have to map out as being potentially exposed to corruption through political exposure. And then finally, an even bigger tranche of information is those who are subject to adverse media. 
And that, and so what we built there is a kind of 20 category taxonomy. Um, the difference between, say, fraud or tax avoidance or tax evasion or people subject to violent crime or fraud or so, and then building that kind of list and like you got kind of how many tens of millions of entities, shareholders, the connections, and then and the connections and the properties and the more information you have about those people and companies and who they're connected to, then the more accurately you're able to filter them down. So if you know that an entity is um, was born on a certain date or is a shareholder of a certain date, then if you've got a common name like John Smith, how do you know this John Smith? So it is the person you, you, you care about. So, and the more sources you have, then the more corroborative data you have and the more data points you have. So really the kind of data never ends, right? And then, and then once you move from bad people, you want to move on to all people. And then you want to go beyond adverse information to kind of fraud, credit, identity. So it's kind of, it's really all encompassing. And so although we spent having a million, raised like 40 million today building this graph, we will invest many more millions to expand it. So I think it's still kind of you know, the, 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 the platform and the structures and the scalability and all these things, like the search algorithms we built, like it's an enormous challenge. And I think in this particular instance, like some pieces of software, um, you can get 95% of the value from building like a 5% solution. Whereas here, I think going the extra like 5% actually adds huge amounts of value because it, if you're moving 2 billion payments a year, then basis points of improvements are critical, right? So it really is the kind of project where it needs to have massive investment and like a kind of 5% solution just isn't good enough. Yeah, definitely. And definitely a problem that benefits from the use of AI and, and the use of algorithms, um, just as you described the different data sources that you use and the amount of data I'm sure you must work with. It's, it sounds like a good solution for that. So. So switching gears a bit more to the to the business model itself and how you guys operate, could you tell us some of the customers that you work with and, and how you work with them? So we work, um, we have kind of probably a thousand end clients we work with and that spans different sectors, right? So um, I guess the one we have on the bridge website is companies like Robin Hood, who are kind of stock trading platform for um very popular amongst millennials and MBA graduates. <laughs> um, but then also, um, yeah, so um, like tons of different fintech companies. Um, so yeah, fintech broadly construed. So it could be banking platforms, insurance companies, remittance platforms, lending companies. Yeah, like every kind of fintech and then corporates too, right? So, um, and, and, and that's kind of in four different processes. So it's when they're onboarding new clients, when they're monitoring those clients, when those clients start making payments, and then when they start making transactions. So we have all those solutions and all those data points for that, right? So it's kind of in each different client type and vertical, we use them in different ways. So we have a kind of, yeah, we have all the expertise around how, how to do that effectively. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know for, um, for a lot of banks and financial services company, this this question of uh, knowing the customer you're working with and that they're not laundering money that's that's been an age old question, right? To to what you were speaking to earlier, it's it's really it can be really difficult in some cases to 
no, you're dealing with the, with the right John Smith and that this John Smith isn't a bad actor. And so I imagine that even as you're developing these solutions, the, the fraudsters are also finding ways to, um, to get around the solutions in different ways or trying to at least. Uh, I can imagine there's almost an arms race. Can, can you talk a bit more about that dynamic and to what extent that does or doesn't exist today and, and how you see that playing out? Yeah, so we had an um, ex-FBI agent called Robert Mazur. Um, so we had like, we had a few people turn up to our web webcast webinar last night. And so he, he was part of this, um, he, he was infiltrating, um, the cartels as an FBI informant. And so he was saying last night that given like the volume of illicit trade is, you know, how many trillion a year and only a few, a few percentage points are actually caught. Then if you think about the asymmetric levels of investment, those, entities can make in, in innovating new solutions. It means that I think to use your word, absolutely. It, 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 it's a huge arms race and it's looking like a red queen running just to stand still, um, whack-a-mole. As soon as one area gets locked down, then another area opens up. So, um, I think, you know, during COVID you've seen huge changes in the underlying patterns of trade and therefore the mechanisms through which people have had to launder money or, move narcotics or by which they can steal money has changed greatly also like most obviously if you want to sell heroin you have to do it in bulk because you can't do it on the street because there's no people on the street or if you want to send send um drugs intermingled with um goods on shipping containers you have to do it again in bulk because it's, it's far fewer goods moving around so or, or let's say that regulation on on um esports gambling tightens up or, or, or all the sports betting stops, then you have to move to something else. So I think, um, broadly speaking, the biggest financial centers attract the most money laundering because there's more listed activity that illicit activity can hide amongst. And I think, yeah, I think you have to innovate. Otherwise I think the, 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 the routes get shut down. Like, you know, in, in, in Ozark, for instance, they had to go somewhere new because, the other routes have been shut down. So I think, yeah, absolutely right in terms of the arms race. And I imagine that you have a good purview of illicit activity worldwide. I'm, I'm curious, can you share where you see the hotspots of illicit activity today or some of the more challenging areas and whether or not that's been affected by COVID? So generally, like, people don't like to tell us when they found something bad in their system. So, you know, like... We might monitor like you know how many hundred million clients every day, right? Um, and we'll send them millions of alerts, but they won't say, "Oh shit!" Like we just found a drug dealer was successfully moving millions through us. So if you take that for drinks, they will do, right? And you can see, but I think publicly, if you look at the fines, every day there's kind of huge fines, right? I think what you've seen with COVID is that the patterns of behavior have changed radically, as in often you're looking for anomalies, right? You're looking for, say, like a zip code where suddenly there's huge spikes way beyond what you'd imagine, or you're looking for um, typologies or behaviors, or, or, um, or you're looking for, say, transactions where they've included it, like a payment to Peter for, 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 for heroin, right? So I think in terms of um, what we have seen, what, what we do know is that there have been huge spikes in fraud, so the Fed and Trump have, have given out 
how many like how many trillion dollars has moved by the banking system to um, to people who are now furloughed unemployed. And a significant portion of that we know also has been stolen because people have faked identities or they've they kind of claim money that doesn't actually people that actually exist. So I think um, that scandal we were fully aware of, and that's now coming to pass. As in, they targeted certain states, and it's now in the press that huge amounts of money have been stolen. So I think that's been the most obvious gold mine that criminals have exploited in this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, definitely an unfortunate consequence of when everything moves digitally, it creates an opportunity for a lot of these bad actors to to take advantage of that. So I'm curious, for Comply Advantage, uh, what's next? Uh, how do you think about the future of the company? You mentioned that you know a lot of the 95% or a good amount of the benefit comes from a small amount of the work, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more that you can do within this space. Um, are you thinking of really doubling down and, and focusing on the KYC AML space, or do you see opportunities in broadening and taking the technology that you've built and applying it in different ways? How do you think about the, the future vision for the company? So we invested very heavily in the, the platform, and so we've released tons of new features which allow people to reduce the kind of missed hits and the kind of irrelevant hits on the platform. Um, so we've greatly expanded the number of entities in the database, the kind of depth of quality, and we're adding um, more companies and more people and more facts. So I think the, the key thing is to kind of enhance that graph. So we want to have more information about the standard patterns of behavior for certain locations, or we want to have more linkages where we can show that this person is linked to another person or linked to a, person, a bigger company. And we want more data about fraudsters, about identity theft, about so we're just constantly adding more and more data to that core graph, and that will get richer and more predictive and more useful as time goes on. That makes sense. Switching gears a bit, I wanted to go back to your journey as as an entrepreneur. Uh, you've built three companies and all three successful companies, so it's that's a pretty good hit rate so far. But I'm I'm curious, how did you first? How did you decide to become an entrepreneur? How did you build your first venture? And what's made you uh, want to continue building new companies? When I was 16, I built a website. And then my first term at college, it was like, you know, making like thousands of dollars a day, right? So I guess I can have, you know, I, I, I coded that myself from scratch, right? Um, and so that obviously was kind of fun, right? Um, and I was good at it and it worked. Um, and I guess I would want to build a massive company. Um, and I think, you know, I think Combined Advantage is growing very quickly and we've invested very heavily. And I think, I think, I think, you know, it has the potential to be a lot bigger than it is. So I think, um, yeah, I think in terms of the problem we're solving and the solution and the investment we made today, I think it definitely has the potential to become a really material solution to many of the core problems in fintech. Um, in terms of like why start a company, right? I think I think I love like working hard on an exciting challenge with a great team and just seeing like the great thing about the company is there's no cap on the upside. It can just carry on doubling and doubling and doubling and suddenly you've got something that's kind of, you know, just like we now have thousands of clients all over the world teams in Singapore and San Francisco and New York. And you know, it, like, 
I think the sense of achievement you get, I think sure the kind of lows are low. I think like, I think, um, you definitely worry a lot and I can't focus on anything else apart from the company. But I think when something great happens, then the kind of high lasts for days. Right. So I think, I think really it's kind of how it makes you feel and the joy of building something ambitious and challenging with a great team and inside the journey is always also kind of great too. So yeah, I think if it works, it's amazing. If it doesn't, then not so much. That's good. It's worked so far. Um, and, and that's, um, that's, that's helpful to hear on that note, any advice that you would have for someone who's a budding entrepreneur in the FinTech space and thinking about building their own company, any advice you'd share for someone in those shoes? Yeah. So I think in terms of launching a company, I think, I think where possible, a lot of people have the temptation to come be in stealth mode and not talk about their idea and to kind of hide it away. I think if your idea is any good, you want to have to ram down people's throats. So I think when people are in the ideation phase and still thinking about it, I think I wouldn't be like closed about it. I think, you know, I, I try and be voracious intellectually and talking to everyone possible because probably someone else will start this before or failed or, or there'll be iterations or you need people around you to give you support and introductions. So, so I think like a really common mistake people make when launching is to kind of think, Oh, it's a self-made venture and someone will copy it. It's an amazing idea. Actually, no, I think the opposite of that is often true in that you need to tell everyone and force them to care about it because otherwise they'll go nowhere. That's great advice. And Charlie, we always like to end these podcasts on a personal note. So I'm curious if you can share what you like to do for fun when you're not working on Compliant Advantage. In the kind of post-COVID world, I think the only fun thing left is to go running, right? I think everything else is banned, right? So outside of COVID, yeah, I guess I like to, I invested in kind of like 20 different companies. So I invested in quite a few fintech companies, seen them grow. Um, yeah, so, so I think, um, I guess some people would, call that work. But, um, yeah, I think I love working with new startup fintech companies and helping them grow. That's great. It's a way to give back from your own experience. Well, thanks, Charlie. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks for sharing your, your wisdom and telling us a bit more about Compliant Advantage and wishing you all the best. Awesome to talk, Peter. That's your time.